Hello, welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. This is a podcast where longer, in-depth conversations are the norm. I hope you enjoy them. If you need a little hope in your life, maybe you want to listen to James and Deborah Fallows. They spent five years flying around America, going to small towns, and finding in those small towns an antidote to our toxic national politics. I'm making a three-way call right here. Wow. That's pretty great. And Deb's going to get her headset. All right. That's very cool. The, the technology is quite remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> the, the kids these days. <laughs> well, in a way, this goes right to your story, doesn't it? The notion that people are living in towns and trying to make it happen in their... You know, you know where I am, by the way, right now, just to add to your thinking? I'm, in, I'm assuming I, in greater Seattle. No, no. I actually am in Ireland. <laughs> Wait, where is he? Um, Ireland. I'm on the Dingle Peninsula. Oh, why are you in Ireland? Oh, well, you know, I left the radio station a few years ago. Yeah, and um, among the things I've been doing is teaching. And uh, I went with some students to Ireland to study well, to compare and contrast civil rights is the main thing. So we looked at Irish civil rights and, you know, we came on the anniversary of the, of the peace accord and we looked at uh, how that has played out and how it, how it affected people who live, who grew up in the troubles. And then we're going to go back and compare it to, uh, you know, just the U.S. civil rights struggle. But... But I stayed. The students went home a couple of days ago. I stayed on, and with my wife, we're traveling together for just to be together traveling. It's fun. Nice. And, and yeah. we uh, we came out to this uh, this little town way out in the Dingle Peninsula where they filmed. We didn't really. This isn't why we came. We actually did not know. But this is where they filmed some of Star Wars. Hmm. And and so there, uh, we actually went to a little event last night where the minister of tourism came and lauded the community for coming together to seeing a way to support each other to promote what they hope will be a tourist attraction so for people to come and see where these scenes in Star Wars were filmed. I don't know if you saw the movie, but they, the, they, they lived in these stone houses uh, on this planet. Well, it actually was these stone houses that are right near here that were built hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years ago by early monks on the coastline above uh, above the Irish Sea. So anyways, it was an interesting notion. It was I got me thinking about what you guys are working on because yeah. it was these folks, you know, who have had their years of, of economic trouble found one little thing that they would pull together on and see if that would help jumpstart their economy. This area is scattered with houses that were built during the their boom and then they call them ghost estates because after the boom ireland has many empty houses that they cannot sell oh that's really interesting so that, that's uh we've never we've been to ireland but not the dingle peninsula so we will add that to our list oh you should you should i was just gonna say that's very similar to a story we heard in eastport maine there was a tv show called murder in small town x and eastport was actually where they filmed it, it was small town x one of the things that they did, this is a town of 1,400 people, was um, was put up this like 15-foot statue that looked like the the Gordon's fish sticks sea captain. 
and uh, in the middle of town um, for the film. And then it was a kind of silly looking statue, but afterwards the people said, hey, we're, we're gonna embrace this idea and um, use it as a symbol of what might be. You know, the TV came here to film this series and, and we can use it as a point of pride and expand on it and, and as a hook to get everybody else to come here. So it stands right in the middle of Main Street today and it's it's certainly a talking point for people, um, but it it has it's wasn't responsible for the success of Eastport, but but it was part of their plan, same way to get people to come and learn about what was, what is, and what could be. Well, let's just keep rolling with that because you said something that that is very interesting, Deb. This book seems to be the theme of this book seems to be what might be. And, and that hopefulness, we'll come to the negative in a minute, but that hopefulness seems to be what, I guess, Deb kept you guys flying across the country. We went from town to town where we had heard from people to say, hey, come see what's going on in this place. And, and you know, ended up in a lot of different time, types of towns where um, what might be had really come to the conclusion, like Greenville, South Carolina, it is now what they had hoped it might be in terms of reinventing their town and making it a beautiful place and making it an economically vibrant place. And the what might be stories that are have a plan but aren't quite there yet are more places like Eastport where you see it in, in process. And then there are the glimmers in people's eyes where they are hoping that their plans can get themselves organized and um, come to fruition. So there's this spectrum from A to Z all the way along where, where we've seen various points of success or uh, the road to success. Well, Jim, where did you go in Washington state? <laughs> well, the, uh, we were only, um, one of our, our sheep, uh, sheepish confessions is that after we got to about 25 cities in some depth, that is spending about two weeks apiece in each of 25 cities, we realized that there were a thousand more cities or realistically 80 or 100 more cities we'd like to go to. And we're going to start doing that again. So in Washington state, we were only in Walla Walla. And, that, and, and then also out in the uh, Lewiston, Clarkston, Washington, uh, Idaho border, seeing some of these wonderful sculptures that uh, Maya Lynn has done for the Confluence Project of having the whole course of, of the Columbia. And Walla Walla is a place I've been a number of times before. We wrote about them only passingly. Uh, as, as you know, Steve, we were, uh, we were two, for two years, we were very um, locally patriotic residents of Seattle in 1999 and 2000. I really loved it there and go there as often as we can. Um, we So extensive coverage of Washington State is still in the next stage for us, although we were in central Oregon, recognizing the huge differences. We were in, in Bend, Prineville, and Redmond in, in that, that part of the country. This kind of brings up a point that when you're flying around in the air, you don't see the state boundaries at all. And so going from Band to Walla Walla was just going from one one town to another. And it, and it mattered less to us that we went from state to state 
it, it's really curious that way that you can draw up a map on the plane where the state boundaries are, but then you kind of have to struggle to see where you are in relation. So it, it matters more when you're on the ground and a lot less when you're up in the air. Well, the reason I ask, and it's good that you, I mean Walla Walla, Bend, those are those are places that are successful. Now contrast those successes, and 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 maybe this comes to the sort of the nub of of what well nub of what you're accomplishing. Contrast those two places with what's in between those two places. As you flew over them, or you know, as you went from the Prineville Redmond Prineville area, that those are. And Ben, those are sort of a buzz with opportunity. But boy, you could go to Shanico or Antelope or outside of Walla Walla, you know, to uh, some of those right. towns, and, and you wonder. And, and I, to to um, Deb will <laughs> Deb will round out this out in a proper form, but just to give you my sort of initial answer. We thought of different tiers of of communities and cities across the United States. In a way, this was related to our time in China, where there's a very strict and formal hierarchy. There are the tier one cities of Beijing and Shanghai and a couple others, and there's tier two and tier three. In the United States, there's not quite the same thing, but there are the big, famous coastal centers, of which Seattle, of course, is one, and San Francisco and New York and D.C., et cetera. Then there's a next tier of almost as big cities of Chicago and Atlanta and Denver and Dallas and Minneapolis, and the U.S. is distinctive in having so many of those. And then there's a sort of uh, a very interesting next tier, the places we mainly went, of places like, uh, you know, of Sioux Falls or of Greenville, South Carolina or, or Allentown, PA or Burlington, Vermont, sort of third and fourth level cities in terms of their population and their relative prominence in the national imagination. And part of our argument is that there's so much opportunity and vitality in those sorts of places and even some very small settlements like Ajo, Arizona, or Eastport, Maine. It's also the case that through American history, at least from the Civil War onward, really, really tiny communities have on the whole been shrinking. That, that I think it's still true of Washington state. I know it's true of most states that over the last 150 years, in each census period, most counties have lost population because really small communities have had a hard time. And so there are communities, some very small communities like Ajo and Eastport are finding ways to, to make their way forward. Um, some very small communities are not. And so we're, we're really looking at the way in which smaller communities and medium-sized places, the scale of Columbus, Mississippi, of 30 or 40,000 people, or like Walla Walla, or like Coeur or the rest, are becoming magnets for sort of regional growth there. Some really small communities do have a hard time. Well, Jim, where does Wichita fit into that? Because the last time you and I spoke officially uh, on the radio, it was about the book you had written about, you know, the rise of, the, of these new small planes and the manufacturers. So where does let's 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 start. You went to Wichita, right? We, we went to Wichita. We spent um, a couple of days there. We spent a couple of weeks in western Kansas, in Dodge City and Garden City, That's and right. and that that part of the state. In Wichita, we were for for a couple of days. And Wichita is a really interesting uh, success story by the measures we're talking about. I think it's best known in the national imagination because it's the headquarters of the Koch brothers. And so it is seen as sort of this um, radiant hub of their political views. 
when you go there, you find it, it, it's a very important aviation center in world terms. It's where Cessna was based and where Boeing now does a lot of its work. Boeing does, there's a subcontractor there called Spirit or something like that, which does a lot of fuselages for, for Boeing. And it's, it has a, as an educational center, it has a very ambitious university called Wichita State, which is doing what we saw a lot of from state universities and also community colleges of trying to match the the relatively high wage opportunities of this era, which are in skilled technical positions as engine repairmen and, and as wind turbine repairmen and as, as sort of uh, staffers for all that kind of, of, of advanced tech equipment with the people who a generation ago might have gotten big factory jobs. These factory jobs are not there. This new technology is there. And in places like Wichita State are doing an ambitious job of matching supply and demand. Deb, when you went to, let's go to Dodge City. When you went to Dodge City, you you spent a lot of time just listening to people and, and probing them about how they saw their community. What stuck out for you about the ways people saw the positive aspects of community? Uh, Dodge City is a really interesting example because it because of the demographics of Dodge City, it's about 60% Hispanic, mainly workers who are in the um, beef processing industry um, and whose families have come there legally, illegally, all different kinds of ways. And then there's the old older established Kansas uh, Dodge City people. And um, a good example of what's going on there and how the community is is working to um, embrace its different parts and all rise together on the same rising ship is what's going on in the school system. Kansas has been uh, suffering in its public school funding um, enormously, but in Dodge City, they had, they had passed, they had passed um, a several several different issue, bond issues and and economic plans, whereby um, the majority Anglo voting population was voting to tax themselves for a seventy percent Hispanic population in the schools to make the schools better in all respects. Um, in order to make everybody better and bring up the strength of their town and have a, you know, have a more educated and uh, democratically uh, viable population going on. So, um, the Jim, could you could you talk about the Dodge City Initiative that speaks to this in an even broader way? Yeah, there were a couple of interesting. Uh, political ramifications of what we saw in Dodge City. Again, from normal political calculus, this is a very, very conservative town. Kansas was a huge one, you know, by a large margin for Trump, as did the county that Dodge City is in, as did the city of Dodge City. There was like two to one <clears throat> for Trump in the, in the past election. But at the same time, in the practical workings of the community, um, in fiscal terms, Dodge City sort of rebuilt itself with this um, permanent tax. The city voted on all of its sort of sales activities for something called the Why Not Dodge Initiative, which supports all this public infrastructure. And as Deb said, they passed a, a school bond initiative for their mainly Latino students with a mainly Anglo uh, a taxing base. Also, in terms of immigration in general, the same city and same county and same state that voted for Trump in 2016 
was working very actively to integrate their largely Latino, partly Somalian and Sudanese uh, immigrant population working in, in the, the, the slaughterhouses with special programs to make sure they were having language um, acclimation and having ways to get their papers in order and just the, the sorts of things you would think might happen in a, you know, California under Jerry Brown, but were happening in Kansas under Sam, Sam Brownback because at the local level, the practicalities of American community life seem to be still grinding forward despite the national level uh, discord. Grinding forward. Why did you use grinding forward? <laughs> grinding forward because here's my theory of America, <laughs> that, that it is on the whole moving forward, but never in a neat or easy way. Uh, you know, the arc of American history is on the whole positive, but there's a lot included in the on the whole from the Civil War to the centuries of slavery to the fact that every immigrant wave when it first arrives is disruptive and resisted and, 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 dis, uh, and resisted in various ways. And so I, I, I guess our contention is that if you didn't know what a troubled time this was in national politics, and you were simply going to a place like Dodge City and say, asking them, what's happening here? How's the town changing? Is it getting better or worse? You would hear from the Anglo population and the Latino population alike that the city was moving forward from where it, where it had been 10 years earlier. The economy was stronger. The downtown was reviving. There were younger people coming back to the town. Uh, we talked, we interviewed a man who was a, said he was a very right-wing conservative who runs an agricultural tech business who said, but he said that he was proud that his, his son was learning Spanish in the public schools. And he was the only one, his son was the only one who knew all the verses to Feliz Navidad in Spanish. And he said that was a good thing rather than a threatening thing. You know, on the street level of what I saw in Dodge City was was kind of interesting. What One thing stuck out to me in particular, um, in in the public library, in the high school, in the, the brand new um, swimming complex that they built where the kids had a swimming team, there was a combination of, of Hispanic kids and Anglo kids at all those events. And usually when you go to places where there are different demographic groups of students, you know, they cross over a lot, but they also isolate themselves into different groups frequently. Um, in Dodge City, I couldn't tell them apart. Everybody was, was kind of mixing and mingling with each other in a way that was different from what I had seen in a lot of other other places in my life and, you know, in our travels around. And, and um, I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting aside that they're planning to put everybody into the same mix and make it more equal for everybody seemed to be working out at least for those who showed up in those places. And it was a mix of kids. Well, let me, let me stick with that for a minute, because as you know, the, the the broken soul of America is African Americans and their relation to this economy, this culture, and and this history. So, where did you find places where whites and blacks were equally building community, Jim? So, uh, the, the place where 
the the three parts of the the country where we saw this in most depth were all I, I guess uh, you know predictably in the south since we were looking to we weren't in big city northeast America but we're smaller southern America in South Carolina in Georgia and in Mississippi Mississippi was the most powerful for us we spent a lot of time in the so-called golden triangle of Mississippi which is the uh, north central cities of Columbus West Point and Starkville this has traditionally been not the very poorest part of the state, but a very poor part of the state with much of the population on welfare or unemployed. The factories there as of 10 or 15 years ago were making toilet seat covers and low-end blue jeans and car seat covers and things like that. You know, really, really low-end work, almost all of which disappeared after NAFTA and the WTO. So there was essentially no work there. And economically, this part of the country has has willed itself forward with a whole kind of advanced manufacturing boom that I can tell you about later on. But culturally, the main institution uh, that, that seems to have, have an influence in the city of Columbus is the Mississippi School of Math and Science, which a part, it's a, a public boarding high school. From stu for students from all across the state who are racially mixed and represent the state. And a lot of their curriculum, despite the math and science name, is essentially the history and culture of Mississippi. And they have excellent social science teachers. And, and they have, with mixed race, uh, race casts of the students, they have reenactments of the civil, the, the, the slavery era dramas of the of the city and the reconstruction era and they go into the into the, uh, the the graveyard of the town which was a civil war graveyard for the battle of shiloh and just uh, try to reenact what was going on then so granting that the historic burden sin problem of america is the is is the, the legacy of slavery um the the smaller the community level including in the South, the more we saw efforts to grope with this part of the national tragedy. And what was it also interesting at MSMS, as it was called, this high school, which draws kids from all over the state of Mississippi, and it's free, and it's a public, it's, as Jim said, a public boarding school. There are about 20 states that have these so-called governor's schools that operate the same way. When these kids were putting on these reenactments in the, in the city cemeteries, they would invite they would invite the entire town to show up and it was you know the beginning of it was a way to use art and performance and music to address what was the major issue if if not in the country certainly in their town to get whites and blacks in the population to come and have a, a kind of tool to talk about what had happened and for the kids to be educated and just to give voice to and put energy behind some kind of reckoning of all of this in a very public way. And we went there a couple times um, and in, in between the, in the two years in between when, when we had first gone to see this cemetery performance just by chance, I think the, the audience had gone from maybe 20 to 10 times that, if not more. And it, it's now become kind of a thing in the city that people talk about. And do they talk about it across racial lines? Are whites and blacks together talking about it uh, with each other or are they isolated? Whites talking to whites, blacks talking to blacks. 
so to to horn in there for a second, Deb, we, we did a an interview. I, I talked at length with a, a man. I think you were there, Deb, weren't you, with Lewis O'Neill? Yes. So there's a man named Lewis O'Neill who is probably in his late 70s, early 80s now, who was a pioneer civil rights organizer. He's an African-American man who lives uh, outside Columbus, and they had been a labor organizer at some of the local factories, uh, at one of the big uh, packing houses there before it closed. And he was, his case was essentially, <laughs> he was saying that um, this is after some of the Ferguson, uh, Missouri tensions and after the increasing wave of, of these videos of police uh, shooting uh, black men in, in the north in Midwest and then northeast. He was saying, you know, it, it, maybe it's not so easy to look down on Mississippi anymore because people are recognizing this is this is how this is an American problem as much as it is a Mississippi problem. And Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia had their distinctive history of lynchings, although Deb and I were at a site in Duluth, Minnesota, where they had a lynching in 1920. Um, but but he was, was saying essentially that this is the tension Americans are aware of in every city of the country, and now I think most often manifested in the use of public violence through the police, is something that is, is happening in, in Mississippi, too. And, and the old Southern cliche that people live in more proximity in small Southern towns, whites and blacks, than they often do in big Northern cities, I think in some of these places is borne out. So how is it, as you write, the, the national politics, the toxic national politics, uh, appears to be a distant issue for the citizens of these small towns, and yet the citizens of these small towns are the ones who are engaged, perhaps enraged, by the toxic national politics. Are they compartmentalized to that extent? How does that how does it not influence their efforts at the community level, Deb? Uh, um, it, what, it, so here's a, a little bit of the evolution of this project. We started flying around to all these towns in 2013, which seems like not five years ago, but uh, you know, five decades ago in many ways. And when we went to a town, we never opened a conversation saying where we were from, which is Washington, D.C., or, you know, what do you think of the political situation? Or as it progressed, well, how about the difference between Hillary and Trump? Who are you for? We, we only ask people to talk about their towns and their lives. And during the course of the from 2013 till the middle of 2016, the number of times the topic of national politics came up was exactly twice. People wanted to talk to us about what was happening locally. And if you, you know, if if we dared to go out of our way to occasionally ask about national things, they would they would kind of roll their eyes or talk about it or give us an answer, but but actually pivot back to talking about what was important to them, how they felt they could influence things on their local level. And and had, I won't say given up, I won't say had rejected, but didn't have space in their lives for what was happening on a national level because it was so far removed from anything that they could touch, then 
then they were committed and engaged with things that would go on locally. Jim, you, why don't you answer that in your way? And so I, I agree with what Deb was saying. And I, I guess the, the the two extra points I would make for people in our business, um, you know, ours, Deb's and mine and yours, Steve, and your, your, your radio life are something has happened in either the way the news media present the news or the way people receive it or some combination of the two that people have an unduly uh, dystopian, horrific, alarming, negative uh, impression of the world outside their immediate experience. Uh, that, uh, that, that is one factor, that people seem to have a more or less realistic ability to judge what's happening within their direct world. The things that are bad, opioids being about the worst and and uh, police violence being another, but also the things that are improving. So I can say, yeah, we have problems, but the direction is positive. But the, the impression of the world outside their experience is, you know, just much darker uh, than that. And so in this Atlantic article, I mentioned the fact that people by almost three quarters of Americans think that conditions in their communities are getting better and the conditions in the country are getting worse. And so that there is just that 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 uh, contradiction or dilemma. Uh, the other is our impression was that national politics had become sort of a cultural signifier cultural slash religious signifier slash tribal that had almost nothing to do with your daily life. In a way, it was like being the fan of a sports team or saying you're Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Jewish or Sunni or Shiite, whatever the dividing would be, you could you know, work with somebody. And then if you asked, okay, which side are you on? Or do you have blue eyes or brown eyes? Then it was a whole different thing. But it's a tribal polarizing us or them oil or water division that is sort of destructively dissociated from still the practical minded uh, work of um, of modern life. Both those things are sort of negative. I mean, both of those things are negative observations that that are our journalistic means of understanding that the world have become distorted and our national politics have become tribalized. But they seem that's the only way I can reconcile the gap between how people live their community lives and how they respond. If you ask them, Trump, Hillary, what do you think? Well, as I mentioned, I've been studying Northern Ireland and of course, mm. blue eyes and brown eyes, right? Protestant and Catholic people lived together for a long time. And then uh, in an in a, in a easy truce or an uneasy truce, you know, in small communities, people people seem to get along. And then uh, the narrative shifted for many reasons, and and the more divisive notion took hold, and and divided people, and you know got people killing each other for thirty years. And now I talk to people, and they say, "It'll never happen again." We we learned our lessons. We learned that violence doesn't work. We learned that we must stay together. It will never happen again. But of course. <laughs> I'm sure that's what people have said in the past. So do you do you think of this book, Deb and then Jim, do you think of this book as sort of a, a call or maybe even a standing over on one side saying, hey, hey, people, yes, we see all the negatives that's happening, but don't go down that path. Here's this other path that we're also, it's also possible to follow. I mean, are you, are you sort of shouting out in a way? Um. Yes and no. I think I, I wouldn't say we're shouting out. I, I would say we're reporting and we're reporting um, 
the other side of uh, the of a two-sided story. All the negative stuff is there, and we're trying to say yes. We we recognize that that all these bad things are going on, but hey, wait a minute! Look what else is happening in all of these places that is, if not equal to, more compelling than the negative stuff of people working together across lines. Um, and we're not evangelizing this or or trying to. Cr- it would be wonderful if a positive movement started over this. But I think our job is to is to talk about it and to try to connect people. Hey, you guys in Greenville who are who are doing all these incubators, talk to these guys in Fresno or these women who are doing exactly the same thing and and um, learn from each other and network with each other and and make use synergy to make this into something bigger than than a, a one by one local by local effort. Um, so I think we're we're definitely trying to use a megaphone and give voice to this. Um, how would you describe that differently, Jim? <laughs> so so this is uh, you're, you're witnessing an atypical moment in in depths of my relationship, which is that I'm going to give the more sort of ebullient answer, and say that yes, I think we are trying to shout this out of of having people understand that there is potential in this era in American life, that that what we like to think of as the real American traits still are there with this overlay, this sort of smothering overlay of toxic politics. And a challenge is to keep the toxicity from seeping down and destroying what is still the healthy tissue in a lot of the, uh, the, the rest of American life for all the problems we have. So as Deb was saying, telling the stories, connecting uh, the the people who are doing similar things across the country, adding to their leverage, making them think they're part of something positive. But but in an actual, I, I would go beyond pure description to a kind of encouragement and advocacy. The this history of the next generation of the United States is not determined and is being worked out right now by millions of people in thousands of towns. And we're trying to let them know what is possible, what's happening, and how the odds can increase. Okay, so you're seeing something really interesting (laughs) here because Jim is is usually trying to get me to kind of calm down a little bit and not be so, so excited about the things we've seen and be absolutist. So I was trying to do that in my answer. But now that he's given me license to say what what I would say is that we are probably the most optimistic people in the whole country right now because we have seen so much of so many positive things going on in community by community. And, and um, yeah, we would like to, to share it and to share it really loudly so that people won't feel like they're alone um, in whatever small smaller community they live in and trying to do it by themselves, but that they are part of something bigger that deserves a lot more light on it than has been pushed away by pick a political topic, you know, today or tomorrow or the next day. You know, um, uh, I think it was uh, the planner, the urban planner, I think it was William White who talked about uh, how there you could find a public space that worked when you found what he called the mayor of that public space. 
because that was the person who sort of had their eyes on the street, had their eyes on the park. And sometimes it was the street vendor. Sometimes it was somebody sitting on a stoop. Sometimes it was uh, somebody who others might have called a, a bum. And you you all talk about, uh, what do you call them, the uh, the uh, the patriots. Local patriots. Local patriots. Yeah. yeah. And, and who are some of these local patriots, and how are they uh, acting as the glue for these event, these movements? Jim? Uh, so in some places, it was the usual suspects of having the mayors. In strong mayor towns and places where the mayor can serve multiple terms, we saw, for example, uh, Knox White in Greenville, South Carolina, is one of a succession of mayors who really made that place happen and was able to connect people from different walks of life. And in Burlington, Vermont, uh, where Bernie Sanders was once the mayor, he's had a succession of strong mayors, too, and then Duluth, Minnesota. But other places, it could be very different uh, people. For example, in Charleston, West Virginia, the person we profiled as man named Larry Gross who is a country singer. He was originally from Dallas area. He was working in California through some uh, kind of Teach for America type program about 30 plus, 40 years ago. He was assigned to be sort of the musician in residence for West Virginia. And he decided that he liked it there and it felt comfortable to him. And so his program called Mountain Stage which is a nationally broadcast NPR program from Charleston, has become essentially the cultural glue of that part of the city and the state. And he's just a big civic figure in various ways. In Ajo, Arizona, there's a woman named Tracy Taft who has no official position, but is sort of a person who just just connects thing, things. And in, um, in, in Redlands, California, my hometown, it's uh, librarians and university figures and a local entrepreneur in San Bernardino. It's an aerospace engineer who decided, although he's politically very conservative, that he wanted to sort of reform the largely um, non-white public schools there. And just uh, so, so, Deb, you can give a couple yeah, of restrictions too. In San Bernardino, there's also a, a group of young millennials. I guess all millennials are young, depends on your perspective. These <laughs> late 20 and 30 year olds, probably um, eight of them or so, <clears throat> who are from San Bernardino and got just got tired of all the naysaying of how terrible their town was. So they decided to band together and start this group called Generation Next. They're um, artists and they also have little jobs. But what the main point of what they wanted to do was be a a couple of things, be a role model for uh, and cheerleader for the younger rising generations to show them and to show everybody that this town has a lot of good things going for it. So they were in a kind of Pied Piper mode where they would go clean up the parks on every Saturday morning. Pretty soon, neighborhood kids would be following them around cleaning up the parks. They would paint murals on the sides of buildings. Pretty soon, people would follow them around painting murals on sides of the buildings. Then they moved to more political type work with the ambition to gain interest and get out the vote in local issues in in any kind of referendum that was coming along so they they'd go into the schools and give lectures to the kids about how how you could be cool but you also needed to listen to what was going on in the civic nature of your town and be part part of it they would start um events on Saturday mornings, musical events and, you know, where there'd be hot dogs and they'd invite, they'd have face painting and it, they would make, they would find ways to draw in the community into participatory, largely art and music based events with the idea of 
that as a vehicle towards civic education and ultimately voting. And this was this is a small group of millennials in San Bernardino who are actually making this happen. You know, you use the phrase civic. Jim, you talked about how uh, that musician was part of the, he was part of a, a, a program to become the, the artist in residence, the musician in residence for West Virginia. These are these public-private partnerships you also say are critical. Do people recognize that aspect of it, that it's the critical public-private partnership that is providing these opportunities? Uh, I think so. And I, I think there was, Deb and I were actually talking about this uh, yesterday. There's almost no place we've seen or no, no place we've been or no, no uh, sort of success we've seen that didn't have this mixed heritage of private business efforts and national level support and state level support and community civic uh, city government support, but also NGOs and volunteers. And so there's no standalone success in this country at any level, either national or, or city. And I think most people recognize that at the local level. And you'll have people very proudly talking about, here's the public-private partnership, which gave us this new technical school. And the, like in Mississippi, the businesses are working very closely with the community college to make sure that people who are coming off welfare, uh, both both uh, black and white uh, people, are properly trained for the new factory jobs that are, that are opening up. So I think that, that operationally and in practice, people of every political stripe in the U.S. recognize the, the inevitability and the desirability of public-private effort and also the ways that, that national you know, support for libraries and support for parks and all the other things have been important to the growth of their towns, whether it's in Montana or Wyoming or wherever. As a theoretical matter, much as you were saying in Northern Ireland, these things become highly divisive, but it just in as a practical day-by-day -day reality, the country still works on a quite integrated, at the local level, and quite an integrated and interwoven public, private, civic, NGO, volunteer basis. What a really good example of this is Columbus, Ohio, where we, we heard, this is the first time I heard a, a new word. You know, we heard collaborate, collaborate, collaborate everywhere across the country that we went in all the towns. It, when we got to Columbus, Ohio, there was so much collaborating going on with the public-private realm that they had to shorten the word. It was just too much to say. So they just said collab. Um, I was t talking with a, a young woman who was working in some boutique shop that was across the street from a um, a cool young restaurant that was starting up. And she said, oh, yeah, we collab with Mouton all the time. Um, in Columbus, there is a, a new high school that is run by the Jesuits that is um, situated right next door to the public, Columbus Public Library. And that school, as they say, if you're, um, if you're rich enough to come to this school, you can't you can't come to this school. It's for inner city children. Um, and the deal that they have made is that these kids will work in, in formal internships in places, in businesses and companies all across the city of Columbus and be paid for those internships, which will then go towards their tuition. They're in the hospitals, they're in, in at in uh, higher education institutions, they're in any kind of private business, insurance company. There are 30 or 40 
companies that have ponied up and said, okay, we'll take some of these interns, we'll train them, we'll kind of spit and polish them and pay them so they can afford their tuition. This school is within shouting distance, within shouting distance of the public library. And um, the CEO of the Columbus Metropolitan Public Library Systems, a man named Patrick Luzinski, said to the to the directors of the school when they were building it, you don't need a library. You've got the best library any high school in America has right here next door to you in the Columbus Public Library System. So that is their library. And they, you know, collaborate and cooperate all across the board. So you've got you've got the inner city kids, the Jesuits high school, the public library, and all of the business community of Columbus working together on this one effort. Jim, you had talked about earlier, you wanted to bring up the, the notion of these manufacturing, these new manufacturing efforts. These are also about community college, private sector, and public sectors trying to imagine uh, a new uh, manufacturing future for these communities. What are the best oh, ones? Yeah, very much so. And I, I think that there are two aspects of this where we changed our mind or, or were newly uh, convinced or impressed by things we saw. One was a version of reshoring. Uh, you know, Steve, you and I have talked over the years about China and its manufacturing efforts. And Deb and I lived there for a long time. We saw all the way it, it has taken over this high volume manufacturing. But increasingly, it's the case that for lower uh, lower production run, higher value, more sort of quick cycle time dependent manufacturing. A lot of that is returning to places nearer the customer base and, and in the United States. And we saw lots of illustrations of that. We saw that in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where there's some high-tech medical devices and energy devices being made. We saw it um, in a lot of agricultural areas in in Fresno, California, in uh, in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where you had ag-related high-tech equipment being made close close to that base, and in Louisville, Kentucky, there's a really fascinating place called First Build, which is essentially it's like a what you think of as a software startup shop, but for manufacturing, for you know small run, quick uh, redesign, uh, high-end manufacturing, and they're they're fostering it all there. So you have a kind of smaller dispersed manufacturing startup culture happening around the country. You also have a, not a revol, maybe a revolution. You have a, a clear wave both in public high schools, in public high schools, in community colleges, and also some research universities of deliberately attuning themselves to train people who 50 years ago might've been thinking of big factory jobs for the sort of high skill, tech jobs that exist now. You know, there's a giant boom in wind energy installers and repairers going on now, and there's no particular end in sight for that boom. That, that industry already uh, employs like four or five times as many people as coal mining in total. And there's similar things in the robotics field where they are replacing jobs, but they're also creating a lot of jobs and, and in construction and in welding and in health Nursing. technology. Nursing. And so we see uh, public schools having a sort of revival of what used to be called vocational education. Now it's called career tech uh, or career technical education and is a very much a growth field. Community colleges working uh, closely with employers and sort of public institutions. 
and then research universities sort of fostering a spin-off culture. We saw that in Erie, Pennsylvania, where they have a lot of uh, automotive and, and aerospace um, equipment they're having as, as uh, spin-offs from a Penn State campus there. So there's lots of public-private NGO focus on these new possibilities. Um, you know, you write also two last quick things. You or not quick, but two last things. You write about uh, that these cities have the bones to revitalize themselves, that they didn't all destroy their downtowns or their downtowns are still there ready to be uh, revitalized by young people, by immigrants, by people who want to see uh, a core grow. But, Deb, are you also seeing a kind of core emerging in the exurbs, in those places that were built post-World War II when sprawl took place and many people scattered across the countryside? Are, are, there, are there malls that are becoming centers, for example, of that could be called like downtowns, drawing people together? Uh, you know, there may be, but... Um... It's not where I you went. We didn't. No. <laughs> uh, we didn't see them. I would say, you know, when sometimes when we landed in, the closest we got to seeing them was they were on the way from the small airport where we would land, um, five miles out of town, to the inside of town. Um, they they were there like the dollar stores were there, um, the general dollar generals were there. Um, the grocery stores and and so forth. Yeah, they're still there, but but the answer is no. The energy is is in these core small in the core downtown main street areas. Um, and interest here's an interesting story of Greenville, South Carolina, which has probably um, renovated its downtown main street zone um, better than just about any place else in the country at this point, and it's it's a new phenomenon. The mayor was telling us that he he constantly has calls from mayors of other towns who'd like to kind of come and see what his secret was. How did they do it? What did they do? And now it's becoming kind of an extra part-time job for him because he's getting groups of mayors and groups of town development people who are flocking to Greenville to say, tell us how you did this. And we certainly saw this. And in, in in towns like Columbus, Mississippi, or Dodge City, and I would say just about anywhere we went, they were at some stage along the spectrum of, of working to develop their small towns. And everybody had the same idea of, we want mixed use. We want, it, we want there to be residential opportunities. We want there to be commercial opportunities and working opportunities upstairs and downstairs so that and entertainment opportunities. So it will be just this big mix of, of a beehive of activity going on. Sometimes there was um, a central place like in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where they opened up a, a new arena for sports and, and um, entertainment that was gonna be the linchpin that drew people into the town. And it seems to be doing that. They're getting more business there and more housing there. Other times it was just shop by shop by shop, uh, renovating the storefronts to to house different kinds of restaurants or I would say Erie, Pennsylvania is one of those that's that's making that move and um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, but it's it, you can you can feel the energy. And if you go there today 
and go there a year from today, you will you will see the difference. It's palpable. Not a zero sum then, Jim. I mean, in the past, people have said, well, these small towns died because the Walmart was built out by the freeway exchange, and that's where people went. You're seeing young people coming back who want to live, who, as you mentioned, don't want to spend more than 30% of their income on their housing. You're seeing that <laughs> those millennials and older people, I imagine, too, who are saying, we can make it happen in this downtown, but are they are they connected still in some way to the freeway interchange? I mean, are they working together? Or are they going to be in conflict? I, I think once when uh, when we were in China, I, remember, I think I remember telling you on, on a show that uh, one of the things about China is that all contradictory realities are always true at the same time. And so <laughs> everything you can say about China is true someplace. And something similar is true of the U.S. too. So it is true that sprawl still continues and these malls have an effect. And we ended up thinking of malls and sprawl as basically the enemy as we were traveling around. Because you could see if in the part of America that was built between the Civil War and World War II, you could essentially see the classic downtown style, the classic downtown layout, et cetera. In the part that was built for, say, 30 years after World War II, you saw a lot of sprawl, a lot of malls. And now we're seeing momentum the other way. You know, certainly there still is momentum towards the biggest cities from New York to Seattle, but there's a kind of discernible uh, reverse momentum of a couple times, what kinds. One is people feeling they can do first-rate work, first-tier work with a different overall life balance and different real estate costs if they go to Walla Walla or Fresno or Allentown or whatever. And secondly, you're seeing younger people who deliberately say, my parents raised me out in the suburbs on a cul-de-sac, but where, where I want to live for the foreseeable future is where I can walk to work, where I can live in a second or third story uh, downtown building and where there are shops and restaurants and brew pubs around me. So I think that there is the tr the trend is moving in a different direction, even though the malls are still there, the suburbs are still there. But there's a kind of energy to this next tier of cities and to downtowns across the country. And, you know, there's a there are I think. I seem to think of it as two different kinds of towns. There are the smaller towns where you don't have exurbs or suburbs. It's just a small town, and there's only one school, for example, and everybody's working to make that Main Street area look better. Then you've got the bigger towns like Fresno or Greenville or Pittsburgh, um, which are surrounded, which are big enough and expansive enough to have the outskirts and the inskirts. And what's happening in the downtown areas there are that in those in the residential, it's not only the main street area, but but the nearby residential parts. I'm thinking of Fresno, um, where you have a lot of of res renovation uh, and kind of I'm not going to say gentrifying because it's more like a preservation movement to to make the downtown areas more attractive and more livable. One of the issues there, of course, is getting schools there that people are happy to send their kids to. Um, and in it's happening in, I can think of two places in particular, Greenville and Fresno, where you've got this downtown kind of arts area in Fresno, where there's a charter school uh, that's based around citizenship. And in this um, changing urban downtown area where a lot of young families are moving this one public school which has its it's a charter school but it's a public school has its focus on being good citizens they've got the kids using um 
taking advantage of, of, of all the urban opportunities in the neighborhood, like going to the homeless shelters or going downtown to City Hall and talking to the mayor, things like that. In Greenville, South Carolina, they built a new school in, in a very troubled but close-in section of the beautiful downtown walking streets, and they named it the A.J. Wittenberg Elementary School of Engineering because the public-private partnerships from BMW and Michelin and GE came together to help form that school as a school of engineering for these little bitty pre-K through five kids. And they've got the volunteer groups from the engineering companies helping build that school. And they've got the kids walking from their downtown neighborhood to the main street to take to, to the big new, it's called the Peace Center. It's a performing arts center. Um, but in those places where they're competing against, in some ways, the, the suburbs and the excerpts, building a very strong public school right there in the, in the vicinity is a key to getting families um, sucked in, vacuumed in to the center of town, too. And in that Wittenberg, the elementary school of engineering in Greenville, they, they, the high school kids were out canvassing the neighborhood during their first year to say, please, will you consider sending your kid to this brand new school? By the second year, um, it was a lottery and first come, first serve. There were parents who were out of district camping at the front door of that school for several days before, before the opening day because they wanted so much to be the first in line to get their kids into that brand new engineering school in the middle of downtown, cross borders. Um, this is a story of collaboration, cooperation. That's what you're telling me. So just on a personal note, how did you feel about this collaboration? I'm sure there were ups and downs, but overall, what was the, what was the brightest moment? Uh, Deb, I think I should, <laughs> with the wisdom of having been together for many decades, I should leave this to you. Oh, oh that's such know. a cop out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the collaboration well, this is funny because when we started out this project, the first town or two or three we went to, there was a huge gee whiz factor. Can you believe what they're doing at Sioux Falls? Can you believe what they're doing in Holland, Michigan? By the time we'd been to 10 towns, it was, okay, what's the version of how they're working together in Pittsburgh or Columbus or Charleston or Dodge City? Um, we knew that it was a, a um, an effort that was being replicated in towns all around the country. For me, it was just hearing the word collaborate shortened to collab in Columbus, Ohio, where I thought, okay, this is a real thing. You know, language always kind of lags behind reality. And to hear a new word ma being made out of, uh, of a concept um, as an indicator of we just got to use this word and embrace it. And it's a little bit different from a boring old word. That to me was the moment where I thought, okay, it's all about collab. But what, but, but how about for yeah. you? Was it collab yeah. for you and Jim too? Oh, for us. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh gosh, we've been married so long um, that I, I, it started out as a collaboration. Don't you think Jim? I guess the, the necessary prelude was not simply the decades we've been together happily every moment, uh, but the when we were in China, we were in China for a number of years, and we both wrote books. We were both doing uh, web posts and also books about China, and that sort of got us in the habit of having our 
related but different, you know, complementary with with an E accounts of being someplace. And I think that we uh, during this, this journey, we were also doing web posts together and just different versions, different perspectives on the same thing. And it's been a a way to keep um, sharing our discovery of the country. And it's it's been there's there's there could be no better person to have done this with than my beloved wife, Deb. <laughs> and I was going to say, it sure would not be fun to do this alone. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned that this is an ongoing reporting project. So what's the next iteration of this? What are you looking for the next five years? So, so uh, there's a passage. I don't know if you've seen the hardcover uh, version of the book. So it has a part in the. It's it's actually a fair amount different from the uh, the, the bound galleys. And there's a a passage I have in there in the beginning of the next round of places we would like to see. That at a certain time we just had to stop. And there are another whole dozens of cities we'd like to go. So I think we, journalistically, we would like to keep exploring and learning about places. And then in a narrative or um, not advocacy, but sort of an exhortative way, we'd like to keep making people aware of what is possible around the country. So for as long as we can keep learning and explaining, we're happy to keep doing that. Right, Deb? Right. Well, all right. I appreciate you both taking the time to talk to me. And I, I look forward to you flying over again. Great. I will Great. land too. Thanks, Steve. Right. Thanks for your excellent questions. Thanks, Steve. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. James Fallows and Deborah Fallows, they are authors of Our Towns, a 100,000 mile journey into the heart of America. Thank you for listening. You know, if you like this show, if you don't like this show, I need to hear from you. So why don't you send me an email? Send it right to my own personal email, sscher at gmail.com, sshare at gmail.com trying to figure out if doing these long-form interviews have value. So let me know. And take care.